Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Signum Symposium, all about the Spring 2020 courses at Signum University. Uh, my name is Gabriel Schenk, and I'm a preceptor and lecturer at Signum University, and I'm not teaching any of the courses this term, but luckily I'm joined with a panel of experts and teachers who are teaching um, these courses or have um, uh, put the courses together in advance. Um, the image you see on your screens is a photograph from my garden this morning. I took a photograph of my snowdrops that have just blossomed um, because I thought it was a very encouraging thought that we were about to enter into <laughs> the spring term at Signum University, even though it is still very cold and dark for, for many of us and we have uh, many more weeks of winter left. Um, but we are looking forward ahead to the longer days and the warmer temperatures, as well as all the courses on offer at Signum this term. Um, the point of this event is uh, twofold. One is to uh, help people who are still deciding on which courses to sign up for, whether you are a uh, credit-taking student or a um, auditor. Um, you should get a move on and register if you haven't done so already because classes actually start from tomorrow onwards. Um, but you, you technically have a bit of time, um, but uh, don't dilly-dally is my advice because um, uh, preceptor sessions will start this week. Um, but you may still be umming and ahhing and hopefully this uh, session will help um, because we're going to be going through all the different courses and uh, this is your opportunity to ask any questions you have uh, about the classes. But the second reason um, for holding this event is because one of the few things we miss out on in an online university is hearing the end of previous lectures as we're waiting outside the lecture hall, um, you know, hearing the students come out of the room and, and discuss what they've just been learning. Um, there's much less of a sense of, uh, of, of things going on around you um, when you're at an online university and you, you have to focus on just the course you're doing. So it's easy to forget that there are other courses running concurrently. Um, and so it, it's nice to have this moment where we just sort of look around us and uh, think about the other courses running, even if we're not registered or signed up for them. Uh, so that's the point of the event. As always, do ask questions. This is your space, your time to ask any questions you like about anything at all um, to our illustrious panel, um, uh, not, not just limited to questions about the courses, although that is uh, obviously the topic under discussion as well. So. Um, I'll just uh, very briefly describe the four courses and then I'll introduce our panel. Um, the first course on offer this term is um, Lewis and Tolkien about the authors C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, then we have a new course called Classical Myths and Legends. Uh, then we have a course called Modern Fantasy II. And then we have the course Intro to Germanic Philology II. So those last two courses are continuations of the previous terms courses. Um, but let me introduce our panel. Uh, so firstly, we have Liam Daly, uh, who has been teaching at uh, uh, courses in medieval literature, mythology, and modern fantasy literature at Signum University since its first semester in the fall of 2011. So he's a, a, a real veteran, uh, a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland with a focus in medieval and Renaissance literature. Liam is currently completing his dissertation on the medieval origins of the early modern history play. He is excited to be teaching Lewis and Tolkien this semester, making it the third time he has taught this course and the 20th time he's taught for Signum. So fantastic to have you with us, Liam. Uh, and that's, uh, that's incredible. 
yeah that's a 20 20th classes that's 20 classes that's great um Where we also have Cor go? <laughs> we also have Corey Olson uh, who is the president of Signum University um, he teaches regularly at the Mythgard Institute uh, where he is currently giving a free weekly course on C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, he hosts the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series and co-hosts the Silmarillion Film Project series on YouTube and other platforms. Uh, his critical analysis, Exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, was published in 2012. Other recent publications include the chapter on poetry in A Companion to J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Stuart Lee, and the chapter on Lancelot and Guinevere, in Mallory and Christianity. Uh, so great to have you with us as well, Corey. Um, next, or oh, did you want to say something, Corey? I cut you off. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Um, uh, next, we have Larry Swain, who uh, earned his MA in Medieval Studies at the Medieval Institute at Western Michigan University and his PhD at the Il University of Illinois. He co-edits the journal, The Heroic Age, a journal of early medieval Northwestern Europe, and has worked on the Old English newsletter uh, and writes about archaeology for the year's work in Old English studies. Uh, and uh, uh, Larry is teaching the new course on classical myths and legends. Um, we also have Sparrow Alden, who is an adjunct, uh, adjunct professor of English at the River Valley Community College, where she is program director at Writer Space. At Signum, she is precepting professor, Hestia of the Hearth, and advisor. Um, she is the author of the Morning Meander series of poetry books available on Amazon, capturing thoughts on spirituality, life, and existence in raw poetic form. So um, wonderful to have you with us uh, as well, Sparrow. Thank you um, very much. So, um, and we already have some questions and comments coming in. <laughs> Noam says, well, what is the meaning of life? Um, <laughs> it, 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 does anyone want to answer that? We, we thought we'd start off easy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh -huh. it, it, if there was a science fiction course, we might say the answer is 42. Um, but we, maybe, maybe we'll come back to that one, actually, unless anyone has any quick thoughts. Um, and Takaka says, uh, a shame I can only take a course at a one course at a time for my sleep and sanity. Yes, well, that is true. Um, you're not uh, limited to just taking one course um, for uh, any technical reason, but of course, you know, th there's only so many hours in the day, um, but it's it's still nice to hear what, what other courses are going. Um, so I, I think we'll, we'll just start with, with looking at Lewis and Tolkien since it's the first on the list um, of our courses. Um, and now I understand that the lectures are, were all recorded and taught by you, Corey, mm -hmm. um, and then Liam, you're going to be precepting this. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Fantastic. Um, so, Liam, if we start with you, um, you, you mentioned in your, in, 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 well, I mentioned in your introduction that this was the 20th class you've taught and you, this is the third time you're teaching this course. So I'm just curious um, what what was different the second time round? What what do you think might be different this time round? Is it always the same, or are they they different every time you teach these courses? Oh, I mean, the, the short answer is yes, they're different every time we teach them. I mean, it's going to be the same books and materials um, as in previous iterations of the course. But I feel like the thing about teaching the course more than once is that there's a sort of a snowballing effect 
with the um, with the information that you get when you're teaching this course. Uh, so you know, going into it uh, the first time I taught it, you know, I didn't know this much about it. The sort of collective body of information that you accumulate as students in the class, people add to it. Um, it, like it gets bigger and bigger every time you teach the class. So I'll be teaching information, you know, from the first time I taught it, we're now incorporating information from the second time I taught it. And this time it's going to be like the third, you know, most complete set of information that we've had yet, basically. Fantastic. And I suppose you're right. It's it's a huge topic because this course could have just been C.S. Lewis and it would have been a huge topic. Yes. It could have been just been talking. It's a huge topic, but it's both of them together. Um, mm -hmm. in three months. Um, so fantastic. Thank well, the, uh, great that you're you're teaching it again. And Takago um, comments, I was there, I mean, in the first course as uh, an auditor. So that was probably, the, presumably that was the first time you taught that course, Liam. So w that would have been, what, four years ago, something like that? Uh, oh, uh, no, longer than <laughs> so, I taught this course in 2014. Yeah, eight years ago, actually. <laughs> wow, eight years. Because it was uh, my first class. Yes. Fantastic. yes. So, so Sparry, were you also in this class as a student? Yes. Fantastic. And how was it? Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a good course. My mind was taken out of the ordinary world and expanded and it was so exciting because Corey and Liam just said, okay, kid, here's the bar. No, let's put it there. And it was wonderful. Fantastic. I suppose the, the one advantage of Lewis and Tolkien studying them is that they're both passed away. So there's not gonna be any kind of, you know, huge new, they're not gonna suddenly come out with a new thing. Although of course with Tolkien, they do, keep publishing <laughs> right so i spoke too soon but he's not going to make a comment that suddenly uh, that that changes the whole dynamic um so corey i i wondered if you could just talk through the the schedule a little bit um in terms of what led you to these texts um i would sort of bearing in mind that it was quite a, a while ago that you actually came up with this course but oh um, yeah but no this is uh this course is is in a lot of ways kind of experimental i mean as you said um at the beginning, I mean, obviously, there's no even vague gesture at covering Lewis and Tolkien. Is so we're going to cover the both of them? This is not a survey course in any way. Um, what how this course was designed was to to to, to think in very specific terms. I wanted to compare and contrast uh, Tolkien. So basically, the germ of the class was people always talk about Lewis and Tolkien together. Right. You know, in fact, people kind of lump them together like they're a team. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that 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 I see, which often makes me pretty uncomfortable, is that sometimes people will they're trying to make an argument about Tolkien or about Lewis and they'll quote the other one to support their argument. And I'm like, G -g 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 <laughs> they didn't they weren't like that. I mean, yes, they were friends, but that does not mean they're the same person. Um, so what I was trying to get at in this class is really be thinking in 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 some very specific ways to, to try to get at the 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 similarities uh, and differences between them. So in order to do that, um, what I did was I chose not works that were themselves similar externally. Um, you know, so like for instance, I could have done 
Uh, I mean, did you see the Wasp Club and Notion Club papers from Tolkien are are in the class? I could have compared that with that of the Silent Planet, right? Which is the natural sort of Lewis pairing, you know, as the, like they did their toss up about space travel and time travel, and one did the one and one did the other. And so I could have compared those two projects that they undertook at similar times and for similar reasons, right? But I didn't want to do that. What I wanted to do instead was to 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 look at particular kinds of creative projects. Uh, or particular themes that were really important to want to to both of them things like thing things that they shared in that way and i wanted to compare those two things directly so uh, you know, you'll see when you see the the you know from the schedule some of the pairings that i've done seem a little bit uneven right like i'm com i'm 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 taking the lost road of the notion club papers and i'm comparing that with till we have faces right which is not very intuitive nor very equals uh, you know till we have faces is the um I, you know, I mean i think the greatest work of nonfiction or of fi a fiction that lewis ever wrote uh and and i'm contrasting that with like a not even half finished work by tolkien that doesn't seem quite fair right but the reason i'm doing that um is not because i think that these things are equivalent in some way but because in those works the two of them are undertaking a very similar kind of creative project that is, they're taking an established myth and they're retelling it, right? They're 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 taking and they're they're kind of reinvesting that the, the you know, retelling that myth and reinvesting it with new meaning. If for Lewis, it's the it's the Cupid and Psyche myth until we have faces. Uh, for Tolkien, it's the uh, um, it's the Atlantis myth uh, in the Lost Road and the Notion Club papers. Um, so I compare and contrast the Hobbit and the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. That one might seem like a more natural kind of pairing. Uh, but again, the point of the pairing is the project that they're undertaking. And in both of them, we have, uh, we have both of those works serving as a kind of move from the mundane world into the world of adventure, like how you encounter magic and fairy and, and the way that they, uh, the way that they undertake the project of bringing readers, especially juvenile readers, into a fantasy world for the first time. And both of them are very, very sort of consciously undertaking that project uh, in those works. Um, I paired Smith of Wooten Major with The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, another very unequal pairing, um, because in both of those, both of those works are very interested in the crossing of boundaries, right? And the pushing of frontiers and the exploration of uh, things that are beyond, you know, the, the, the normal access to mortals, right? Uh, so how do they both approach that? You know, what do they do? So my, my goal here in doing these things was uh, to, to, to really begin to see the ways in which uh when we see them thinking about the same kinds of things when we see them doing the same kinds of things what are their similarities and what are their differences in their approach and i was really really pleased with this uh with the class i felt that uh you know sometimes as i say the, 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 it was kind of experimental it would have been much simpler uh to design this course in a much more kind of standard way like let's you know read a bunch of Lewis's major works and a bunch of Tolkien's major works and talk about them, you know? Um, and so this kind of an experimental um, structure was, you know, kind of a gamble, but I, it really worked out. I was, I was extremely pleased at what I felt I learned over the course of the class. And uh, uh, we had some really wonderful discussions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a fantastic list of texts as well. Um, and it, it, it was some of what you were saying makes me think back to last term and Brenton Dickinson's course on 
um, C.S. Yeah. Lewis and love, um, yeah. because you know he 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 does quite a lot on friendship in that, and Lewis has a lot right. to say about friendship. If yes. I remember rightly, in um, his bio autobiography, A Surprise by Joy, he talks about um, friendship as with Barfield, Owen Barfield, as kind of friendship in opposition, and yes. um, someone who's read all the right books but comes to all the wrong conclusions. Exactly. So you know that idea that kind of oh, if you're friends, your boss and buddies, you never disagree. That's not true for Lewis no. and Tolkien. It's not true for no. most of our friends. And so that those kind of points where they disagree are really interesting. Um, I suppose the, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe also has the resurrection of Christ mm -hmm. in it, which mm -hmm. is also something that Tolkien was interested in, but did so in a different way. Exactly. Um, with, with, uh, with Gandalf and with others. Um, so it, it I think a lot of people do get very excited when they hear that C.S. Lewis, you know, the guy who did, wrote Larnia and the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings were friends. And it sort of feels yes. like a kind of Marvel cinematic universe crossover where you see <laughs> Iron Man and Captain America talking to each other. <laughs> right. But the right. reality is that it's not quite that simple. That, that I mean, talking famously didn't like the Chronicles of Narnia as well. I don't know if it, how much we know about that or how much um, mm -hmm. you go into that. But, but just looking at the text themselves, you can see those areas of contrast, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's it, it was, I mean, the, and I, I wanna, you know, spoil my overall conclusions uh, for the class, but you know, I definitely felt that I emerged with, uh, the understanding that I emerged with um, was really beginning for the first time really to be able to put my finger on the fundamental differences between the two of them and people who well sometimes people who are fans of both don't see it as clearly um people who are fans of one and not the other see it much more clearly <laughs> that the two of them just think very differently i mean they are they, they they yes they were friends yes they shared many interests yes they, they as you say they read the same books but they drew many of different conclusions but it, but that wasn't, in the end, the main thing I, I, I found that I got at. That is, it wasn't about the, the substantive differences in what they thought and what they said. It's the difference of how they approach. Like they just, they think very differently. Their minds work very differently. Uh, and that is what I felt more than anything else. This approach of looking at them undertaking the same things and, and, and how they go about doing it and what they say when they do. Um, really kind of helped me to understand uh, them as as thinkers and you know the contrast between them as thinkers and writers uh, uh, more generally understood rather than like the specific uh, topical differences between right. uh, the, their approach so anyway it was it was it, it was a fascinating course in this way uh, I definitely uh, you know when I look back at the signum courses that I have taught uh, this course is still definitely one of the ones that I'm uh, that I'm most pleased with in retrospect. Mm -hmm. And Liam, what are your thoughts on this? Um, it, 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 Corey has talked about what, what he learnt from giving the, the the lecture series. Do you do you have you taken something out of it that's slightly different to that, or were you sort of uh, so broadly in the same? Well, yeah, I think <clears throat> one thing that you were talking about that I was re remembering as I was looking over my notes from having taught this in years past is the the surprising number of people who are fans of one but not the other coming into this class having just very very radically different outlooks and very different sense of like what and of course we all know that they were friends and we all know that they worked together and commented on each other's stuff um but just two very very 
between two people who might on paper you might expect them to look somewhat similar uh two very very different outlooks and approaches to similar questions and issues i think yeah yeah and they i mean they had a famous falling out i you see that this is the thing that i go back and forth with lewis and talking in when i'm in my own thinking sometimes i wake up one day and i think oh yeah no they were good friends and they were good influences on each other and sometimes i think it's been way blown out of proportion and it's been romanticized because we want to put them together and actually you know they weren't that big influences on in each other and the, the fact that they both wrote fantasy is a lot more to do with who they read but i go i go back and forth on, on that i mean it sounds like the course grapples with this question um but i i don't know if, if you either yourself or or corey have a kind of feeling one way or the other of, of how important they were to each other in their own lives or maybe that's not even the right question to ask well yeah, i mean how important they were to each other it, i i do think that so coming to like as as somebody who's always been a big fan of both um i know that i mean from my childhood when i because I, I i first learned it and i remember you know gabriel you were exactly right is very much a kind of uh, avengers unite attitude that's a perfect metaphor for it um you know the feeling uh this it's 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 incredibly romantic the idea that my two favorite authors were like best friends and i want them to be best friends you know um i remember the first the first time i read um surprised by joy which you mentioned you know and he talks about uh his and so when when he talk when he, when he introduces barfield right and he talks about like you know his closest friend and then there's another time where he talks about like this person who meant so much to him uh when he was and and i'm like okay and it's gonna be tolkien <laughs> yeah, right yeah. but it wasn't it was barfield yeah, and then tolkien. okay this next one yeah. it's gonna be tolkien no it was hugo dyson you know <laughs> and he does mention tolkien but he gets a like a comparatively small mention like it's it seems pretty clear that um you know, like the two of them were not, you know, best friends. Like they, they, they were friends. Like, and and I think in some ways, you know, one of the things that we can see from, for instance, evidence of things like the commentary on the Lay of Lathian by C.S. Lewis, right? It, it is pretty clear that there was there was a kind of um, there was a kind of harmony between them that there wasn't. Like C.S. Lewis and Barfield did not have the same kind of literary impact on each other you know like they weren't they weren't uh they weren't kindred spirits in the sense that they were both undertaking that barfield was in a totally different place right he wasn't he wasn't a don right he wasn't wasn't even wasn't a fiction writer in the same way right i mean it's whereas tolkien uh you know to lewis is somebody else who is doing exactly the kind of stuff that he really liked and that he admired um even though like the Silmarillion stuff and Tolkien's larger, like, uh, you know, mythology development and stuff is not something that, that Lewis did. Lewis was not anything like the sub creator that, 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 that Tolkien was. Um, but still there was, I think, a closer sympathy between them on their literary, you know, their sort of their, their, their literary tastes and their literary undertakings. But that doesn't mean that personally, you know, Tolkien was Lewis's most important friend. You know, he, he I, I don't think he was. Um, I wonder if Lewis was more, if Lewis was more to Tolkien than Tolkien was to Lewis, because certainly one fairly clear impression that I get is that Tolkien was, uh, 
at least in his adult life, doesn't seem to have been in his college life, but in his adult life, he appears to be a little bit uh, more introverted than Lewis. I mean, Lewis was the social epicenter of, you know, everything that was going on, hosting everything in his in his chambers and everything, and and uh, and Tolkien was seemed to be a little bit more on the outskirts of 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 like the inkling, certainly than than Lewis. Um, and so I wonder if uh, if if in Tolkien's list of friends. Lewis would have ranked higher than, uh, to Tolkien than Lewis would have ranked than Tolkien would have ranked to to Lewis just because Lewis had more uh, mm-hmm. uh, more more central friends and I think partly that just has a lot to do with Tolkien having a family life you know yeah. I mean he yeah. his 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 he had friends on the side whereas Lewis's friends were the center of his life you know as he mm-hmm. was a you know his in his bachelor dawn days there and uh, Liam is that to your sense as well. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, uh, Corey, as you were saying all that, that, you know, famously people talk about the debt that Lord of the Rings owes mm-hmm. to Lewis, that, it, you know, if it weren't for his continual prodding right. and instigating and and really and pushing Tolkien, that we might never have gotten the Lord of the Rings. Um, Tolkien famously, like, you know, like to ruminate, like to expand, like, you know, but, mm-hmm. but in terms of actually getting it done. Right. Um it was a great debt of gratitude to Lewis, actually, you know, being his taskmaster on that. Lewis did not need Tolkien to get things done. Lewis cranking out, you know, work <laughs> after work. And then sort of the, uh, and this is going to sound very flippant, but like, you know, the I did it, I like it, it's good philosophy. Like, not a great reviser, Lewis, famously, whereas Tolkien just endless, 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 endless revisions. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a very much John uh, and Paul thing going on there that, you know, you know, you, you, the success of the Beatles is the tension between the two of them. I think the success <laughs> of um, both of them to some extent, but certainly Tolkien, like the tension between those two impulses. Mm-hmm. Of Speaking of creative tension, Sparrow, I saw you you pop a, a book up for a second. It was Bandersnatch by, by Diana Galaya. Uh, yeah, so d- d- just explain what, what that means. Diana Glyer released uh, this book earlier in uh, in 2019, and she, as an Inkling scholar, has taken what she knows about their interactions, their mutual influence. You know, who's who's the poker? Who's the encourager? Who's the the resonator? Who really gets you? And turned the model of their interaction into lessons for writers and specifically for writing groups Mm -hmm. if if she can observe these historical writers interacting and extract some facts extract some patterns and then encourage us as modern writers to find the person who's your lewis if you're a reviser four thousand times Mm -hmm. all right and it, it, it's it's brilliant, and I'm using it as writer space for a model of how writers can think of each other as colleagues. Yeah, that's a it's a terrific book, and and the the, uh, the sort of the more academic version of that book as well is is also available. Um, uh, what's it called? Company, company they, they keep. keep. Yeah. The company they um, keep. Well, uh, Chris, Chris has a comment about um, the Lewis and Tolkien course. She says, the way Dr. Olson paired works by Lewis and Tolkien made me think of the works in different ways and led me to write a recent myth law article on Lewis, Tolkien and Philip Pullman's voyage tales. Um, uh, 
looking at Dawn Treader, um, Reverandum, and La Belle Sauvage. Um, and so th that article is available now on, in MythLaw. It's a fantastic article and it is free to download, uh, I believe. Um, so do check that out. And it's, it's a great example of the influence of the course, but also, um, you know, scholar Chris uh, Swank um, sort of continuing to sort of um, push this this idea of Lewis and talking together, but also sprinkling in a bit of Philip Pullman as well, just to make it even more interesting. Um, so uh, that's fantastic to hear. I do highly recommend that article. Um, I, I think we could talk about Lewis and talking all day, but I mean, this is just one of the courses on offer at Signum this term. So um, I'd love to, to move on to Classical Myths and Legends because this is a really exciting course as well. Um, it's brand new, it's gonna be live. Um, uh, so um, uh, Larry is lecturing on this and precepting on this. Um, Larry, tell us about the course. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, in, in part is, is kind of in a response to the Germanic myths and legends uh, that Nelson and Paul uh, offered, um, which I think is, is fantastic, right? That's one of the great things about Signum is that Germanic philology, Germanic myths and legends, sagas, uh, all of that is kind of front and center for us. And I, and I love that uh, about what we do here. Um, but I, I, I thought that, you know, even when we get to the Germanic stuff being written down in the Middle Ages, uh, the people who are writing it down have been reading the material, or at least some of the material um, that we're covering in the Classical Myths and Lesbians course. Uh, and so, you know, for me, when we're looking at Till We Have Faces, for example, in the Lewis and Tolkien course, uh, my understanding and appreciation of that, and I, and I think that Corey is absolutely right, that is absolutely far and away the best thing that Lewis wrote uh, in terms of fiction, um, but knowing the, the Cupid and Psyche myth from all its permutations uh, in the classical period uh, that Lewis is drawing on really enriches the, the, the story for me. And, and that, you know, goes to, to Shakespeare as well. You, I, I don't think you can really understand more than half of Shakespeare's references unless you have some idea about classical myth. Uh, and, and what's going on there because he, that's what he was reading and that's what, you know, some of some of his sources, uh, including, you know, Pyramus and Thisbe from Ovid's Metamorphosis, for example. So that, that was kind of my idea for, uh, for this course is to kind of help us, uh, you know, since we're talking about Proto-Indo-European cultures and languages, uh, that, you know, this is another aspect of that that we can put into comparative linguistics and comparative mythology and um, and all of that, and just kind of really help our, our readings and our studies uh, of these materials. Yeah, no, was, absolutely. It's an incredibly important um, space to fill. And and you were saying earlier before we began, it's sort of surprising that we haven't filled this space yet. Um, right. We've sort of I'm really this. happy because it gives me the opportunity. <laughs> absolutely. Um, to touch on this slightly with, with perhaps with Professor Faith Acker's class on the English epic, which which sort of um right really there's there's actually uh, i was looking at that while we were while we were uh, talking earlier and there's actually very little overlap between this course yeah. and that course. Uh, i think the aeneid is the only thing that um uh, and and some of ovid are the only things that that really overlap right uh, the, the rest of what uh, they covered in that english epic course were you know things like milton the fairy queen which thank god i don't want to ever teach the fairy queen if i don't have to 
Bears of the Fairy Queen. <laughs> um, I mean, this is this is pure myth. Come on now. <laughs> well, I, you know, I appreciate Spencer's poetry. I mean, the artistry that goes into that, and and the invention of his own uh, wonderful English meters. I hate teaching the Fairy Queen. <laughs> uh, it's it's, I really it's, do. Not, and, and it's I apologize long. for that. I feel, I feel a little ashamed <laughs> uh, about not liking the Fairy Queen. But um, what's uh, what's his sonnet sequence? That's usually what I choose to teach of Spencer. Is the, is his the Amoretti? Sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Amoretti, uh, you know, written to his his uh, soon to be wife, um, or at least that's what we think. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Um, you know, Sorry, to, faith, to faith in the in the English epic class covered the Fairy Queen and covered Milton and um, uh, I think it was some as well. Very little no. overlap. Yeah, yeah. Gnome's no, 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 pointed out that there was also metamorphosis, um, but none of the Greek material. Gnome um, says so. Yeah. So it, right. it, 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 the only thing I think that sort of touches on some of those those sort of authors and those times. But as you say, it's, the material is very different. This is pure myth, really, isn't it? Or well, I, I don't know. Would you say that? I, whatever pure myth is, I, I realize I've said that. Whatever right. pure myth is, right? Hence <laughs> the legends part. <laughs> right. Exactly. Myths, exactly. Uh, myths and legends. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the the beginning of um, uh, the uh, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, uh, when Galadriel says something like, "Story became myth, and myth became legend, and legend became." plot and and it's like this kind of hierarchy <laughs> and it, it, it makes it sound like myth and legends are quite distinct how are you using those two terms are they are they one and the same or is um, this the, the, the yeah. differences the, yes how's that <laughs> uh from, from from my point of view these things you know out, kind of out at the edges you can say okay that's a legend that's a folk tale that's a fairy tale that's a myth right. Uh, about what you know, you, you're you're starting to really get in the middle. There's a lot of overlap, and the borders kind of are are a bit. Messy. You know, you really can't say, okay, the Odyssey is this. Well, we know it's an epic, but yeah. there's a lot of mythology in there. Um, there's there's you know legend in there. I mean, in this one work, we've got multiple genres really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, history so, as well. So the, the borders are kind of squishy, uh, mm-hmm. and and very porous. Well, that I mean that that sounds like fascinating sort of areas to to explore and to to grapple with. Um, the the other question I had for you, which you've you've sort of answered, but I'd be curious to hear a bit more, um, which is a question about your background, because I, when I introduced you, I talked about your sort of background in old English and medieval literature. Um, from what you're saying about this course, this is this is in a way looking at what later influenced um, medieval and Renaissance writers. Um, but I'm just curious about your own, how your own background fits in with this. Where, where did, were you interested in this kind of stuff from from an early age? Is this a kind of dual interest, or is it is this a way of you know you you, you understanding later texts through earlier texts? How how does that work? Um, boy, that's a good question. So, way back, far distant youth, um, I originally was going to be a, a biblical scholar. Uh, and so I was uh, doing some work in terms of fitting, particularly early Christianity, but but also um, uh, early uh, rabbinic studies, and and fitting them into a Greco-Roman context. So I was looking at um, cross-pollination between 
uh, Greco-Roman religions and myth and the Christian myth and, you know, the Jewish national myth or, or ethno ethnographic myth um, and, and doing some, some work with that. And then I thought I was going to be a classicist. Uh, and then there was a life got in the way. And, and then, you know, 15 years later, when I went to get my uh, MA, uh, my interest had shifted a bit, and so I became a medievalist. Uh, but I still have the the interest in in classical materials and the survival of class, classical materials into the Middle Ages, uh, and and the the influence they have there. So I, you know, one of the things that that isn't in my signum biography is um, I work with the sources of Anglo-Saxon literary culture, and one of the things that we look at is, you know, how the the medieval scribe copied. Right, these classical texts and read these classical texts and possible influence of these classical texts on uh, on medieval literature and language. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So that, that makes go. sense. <laughs> yeah. I want to do all the things. Um, but you you sort of mentioned sort of you know being interested in this uh, from an early age because it, I, I'm, I'm so many people come across these myths and legends as children. Um, for me, it was through the work of Asterix um you know oh, the, yes. uh, and, and and things like that um and uh I, I don't know i mean it's very difficult to remember exactly where but i was sort of always aware of people like hercules and and um you know uh, uh, the, the trojan horse and so on for my father um i, I mean he, he told talked to me about this recently it was um he came to all of this through the work of uh roger lancelin green uh who was, oh, okay. uh, who was um a great influence on both, um, well, on C.S. Lewis certainly, but, but to a lesser extent on Tolkien, just to, to bring it back to Lewis and Tolkien. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'd be curious to hear from from the rest of the panel and also the audience. Um, did you also come across these myths and legends as a, as a child? And can you remember what actually led you to the, these fascinating stories? Um, uh, I don't know if anyone wants to just well, we jump. Get the, in. We get the cleaned up versions as kids, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, right. Versions, yeah. So when, for example, when we read uh, the Theogony, there there's some stuff in there that that you didn't run into. <laughs> it's all about cutting balls off and throwing them into the ocean, and and yes, you know, exactly, and the incest and yeah, all those kinds of things kind of get a little cleaned up in the kids' versions. <laughs> Um, and certainly in the Roger Lancelin Green version as well. Sparrow, you, you've had your hand up. Um, do you, do you want to talk? I was going to say, I know you're saving the question for the end of which course I would want to take. And for me, it's the classical myths and legends because my dad, like your dad, Larry, gave me uh, kids' versions, but really beautifully written, beautifully illustrated Greek and Roman and Norse myths. They were his books when he was a boy. And so not only was it from my dad to me, but it was from these amazing old things to me. And boy, would I love to go through these stories as a grown up. Wouldn't that yeah. be fun? Yeah, it's something we, we all feel we know, but actually have we really read these texts? I'm just looking at the texts here. Um, I mean, I, I've done some of this stuff, but there's a lot that I really would be fascinating just to read properly and, and sort of and spend time with 
Um, so it looks like a terrific horse um, and, and such an important I have to say that I've, I've significantly changed the schedule there. So Okay, well, I, I put plan schedule up because I know how in live courses, right. that's the magic of the live course is that it can move around even when the course is happening. It's a, it's a terribly exciting thing taking a live course if you haven't done so already um, because you, you get to attend the lectures live if you want to. Uh, you get to ask questions you know as the lecture is actually happening and then you you never know quite know what's going to happen with the with the schedule um you know it, it could change um even during the course as well um which is which is uh which is really cool and fun um and uh, noam says uh, i reread last year the book that introduced me to the classical myth so i'd love to know what that book was uh, if you could let us know yeah not sure. um, but uh, yeah, but, but, but cool that you reread it. Um, and I wonder if it sort of, you know, was as you remembered as well. And Takako says, um, I haven't read um, very many classical myths and legends. Um, and I, we should point out Takako, you're, you're based in Japan. So classical in, in, you know, in Britain and America means Greek and Roman, but uh, I mean, it's a particularly kind of Eurocentric view of the world. Um, but um, uh, Takaka says, I read fairy tales more in my childhood. We had a few manga versions of um, ancient Greek and Roman myths and legends. So that sounds fascinating. I'd love to see a manga version of um, Hercules or, or whatever, or the, the Iliad. Um, oh gosh, I remember, I, I've just remembered the, the thing that introduced me to this whole thing, which was, um, brilliant book it was called oh what was it called something like crafty odysseus or something like that and it was it was read by baldrick from um blackadder um sir terry thing um and it was i think it was written by terry deary and it was just so brilliant and it was really gory as well i remember that we used to we listened to it in an audiobook uh anyway so that's just come back to me um and uh um what else um Oh yeah, uh, Phil. Phil suggests we we do asterisks for the Mythgard Academy. Um, what, what do you think? What do you think, Corey? I, I think it's a great idea. Um, and and uh, Noam says um, it was in Hebrew. The title transfer um, translates to something like the um, magnificent flying horse. Um, so just on the on the mm. topic of the book that introduced you to all this um, stuff. But I don't know whose flying horse that was. I suppose. Um, uh, doesn't Personal. Mars has Pegasus? Yeah. Presumably. Pegasus. Oh, sorry, One I keep on talking about you. <laughs> well, Odysseus. Oh, I just said Pegasus, and you know that would that oh, would be Pegasus. the first. Yeah, of course, Pegasus. 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 Yeah, and 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 Noam says yeah, Pegasus. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, okay, cool. Um, Wow, well that that sounds like a terrific course. Um, so uh, yeah, really looking forward to 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 uh, hearing how that goes. Um, so uh, me too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it, as I say, it's a really exciting thing to have a live course, and um, it's uh, it's be great to sort of add this to the the masters program because um, it's a really important topic. Um, so we we have um, also modern fantasy two um offered as a course um so this is not a live course but um it will be precepted live um by sparrow and i think sarah is also maybe precepting as well but um sparrow do you want to just talk about your relationship to this course because and 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 describe the lectures a bit because i, I believe that the lectures are given by corey is that right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes the lectures were originally recorded by corey and i think in 2014 is that about right sounds right and 
<laughs> Sounds right. And the first thing people need to know is it's called Modern Fantasy 2, but it is not required to have Modern Fantasy yeah. 1 under your belt before you take it. Corey's approach to this course, as far as I can tell, um, and, and do not look at the man behind the curtain, right? So <laughs> this is entirely, you know, freewheeling, uh, off-the-cuff genius as, as he goes strolling down the lane. Um, the idea is to pull in six very different fantasy mm -hmm. novels and hold them up side by side and say, okay, so what's fantasy? And the way that he close reads and then connects them to each other, you'll see from the schedule that the first half of the course, the first three books are in entirely um, worlds that have some relationship to the world that I live in. And yeah. that I hope you live in too, yep. because that'll make it easier. Um, <laughs> Catherine Kerr's dagger spell has a lot of Celtic, particularly Welsh influence and hard magic takes place in a parallel um, Europe and America and Japan had World War One's antecedents gone very differently because of all the magic. Mm -hmm. Those and in the second half, there are completely self-contained worlds of fantasy. Wow. And okay. they're very different methods of creating a fantasy world. And we hold them up side by side and say, what are the different ways to do this? It's very exciting. Corey, did I, uh, is that, that just sort of rolled off your tongue one morning at breakfast? You said, I shall create an entire brilliant course on this premise. Is that about right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, you know, the, 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 the really, I mean, the modern fantasy courses went into, and as you say, they're totally non-sequential. It's just, uh, you know, I mean, in the very simplest terms, like modern fantasy one was like a bunch of really good modern fantasy books. And then modern fantasy two was like a bunch more other really good modern fantasy books. So they're, they're not, they, they don't build on each other at all. Um, but um, the, the the but yeah i mean essentially i wanted to be looking at not a not a survey course in the sense of like you know covering a uh a, a, like a you know a particular topic or group of material from one end to the next but looking at several examples of like what does what does the modern fantasy genre do you know um and so yeah so sparrow's exactly right that 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 uh, you know i chose these uh along exactly those lines that i wanted to look at uh, some examples of uh, works which are kind of interacting really closely with our world and 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 asking some what if questions about our world and 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 others which are more acts of pure subcreation. Um, uh, so, and there's some variety. It's not a huge amount of variety date wise, but there's some. There 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 are three which are older. In fact, like ironically, three from 1986. 1986 was the great year uh, of, of, of this course. Three of the books are from 86, uh, but then the others are all from the 2000s. So we've got, you know, three which are which are quite recent and then three which are which are slightly older. Uh, so thinking about some of the ways in which the genre is moving, though goodness knows the genre is so vague, you know, so broad that I'm not trying to pretend there's any clear, you know, 
direction or trend in the genre as a whole. But, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, in a, in large part, the modern fantasy classes were at root just a way for me to be thinking about what like what what is fantasy what does this mean you know uh especially since uh i think the initial challenge that led me to do the modern fantasy course was um hearing people say and even saying myself many times about how you know we do doing a lot of tolkien and 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 both saying and hearing people say how you know tolkien is the uh you know the father of the modern fantasy genre and stuff and i was like well okay so like let's look at the children and you know it's like actually see and so you know of course the first text is on fairy stories which i mostly do for vocabulary because i i have a really hard time talking about you know fantasy as a as a genre and sort of the thing without using, uh, you know, Tolkien's vocabulary from on fairy stories. So I, I, I said this was this was in that period when everyone was teasing me that like on fairy stories was on every syllabus that I that I offered. But that's why, because I mean, I, I don't want to take it for granted. I don't want to just use the vocabulary without um, uh, without people being familiar with it. But I found it just impossible. I mean, I, I, I already accidentally did it by talking, using the word subcreation uh, the way that I did. And, and uh, so anyway, so that, that's why that's why that kind of begins there. Uh, uh, and then and then moving forward. Mm. No, I mean, it reminded looking at the schedule reminded me of a quotation from Sir Terry Pratchett um, in which he says, J.R.R. Tolkien appears in the fantasy universe in the same way that Mount Fuji appears in old Japanese prints, sometimes small in the distance and sometimes big and close to, and sometimes not there at all. And that's because the artist is standing on Mount Fuji. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I actually wanted to throw that out there as to whether you agree with that, because I think, you know, it, it sounds like that might be true. But then also perhaps is that a bit limiting? Is that you know, can we, we can read Ursula Le Guin and not just sort of as a kind of, you know, with something with talking in the context. I mean, we can read her as her own writer and we can read, you know, Catherine Kerr and so on as their own writers, can't we? Or, or can we? Oh, absolutely. Get... Absolutely. I, I don't think that it's about, you know, uh, so some people will say that like, you know, a, a lot of modern fantasy writers are like, yeah, I, I've heard people joke that like almost all modern fantasy writers begin by being derivative of Tolkien and then they find their way, you know, after that. And that's, I mean, certainly you can find examples of such things, um, but I certainly don't think that that's the case. And Le Guin, of course, is a brilliant example. Uh, you know, the, the uh, I, I just finished uh, doing A Wizard of Earthsea, which was in Modern Fantasy 1. I just finished doing it again years later uh, in the Mythgard Academy series in uh, November uh, uh, and December this past year. And um, I just and one of the things I was really struck by teaching through it again uh, just in the last few months was what an, what, what an amazing book that is for such an early book. You know, I mean, like uh, I, 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 you know, other fantasy writers could like wish to have such a. Uh, uh, 
a new approach and such gorgeous prose in their like most mature works, you know, and then here's Ursula Le Guin. It's, you know, it's the very beginning and, and she's already, you know, in full form like that. It's amazing. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so Le Guin, you can't read a Wizard of Earthsea and be like, yeah, well, clear, clearly here she's still in her ripping off Tolkien phase and then moving <laughs> forward. I think so in one way, one way of understanding Tolkien's influence, I think, uh, on the fantasy genre, uh, well, let, let me offer a parallel. Dante, Dante and the Divine Comedy, right? Uh, I would I would offer as a parallel um, in the sense that what Dante did, one of the, I mean, the hugely important things that Dante did was establish vernacular literature as a legitimate thing, right? You know, he was one of the first people to say, I am going to write a great work uh, you know, not just like Pulp Fiction, but 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 a great work, and I'm going to do it in the vernacular, right? I'm going to do it in Italian, and I don't care. Like you think it can't be done? You think that only like Latin is 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 like you know is sort of worthy for you know great works? And other people followed in his footsteps, like Chaucer, very deliberately, for instance. You know, when Chaucer was. Uh, 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 really kind of setting out to do in a sense for English. He did not think nearly as highly of himself as Dante, but then again, who did? Um, uh, but, uh, but anyway, he, he, so he, he was not nearly so arrogant as Dante in setting out to change the world, but I do think that he was modeling himself in part after Dante. So Dante changed the world of literature in Europe, uh, because he was the first one to show that, like your own native language, um, even though it's you know it does not have the credentials you know of Latin from a philosophical, intellectual, and literary standpoint, you can still use that as an instrument uh, for great creativity. Uh, and so, in some ways, I see Tol that that's the parallel that I see with Tolkien. It isn't that everyone is like inspired directly by his work. It isn't that all modern fantasy writers are modeling themselves after him or that their stories are influenced by his stories very directly. Often you can see that, but I don't think that that's the most important thing. Just like Dante showed that you can write great stories in the vernacular and thus open the door for other people to write great stories in the vernacular. Um, so Tolkien showed that you know, fantasy literature is something that is inspiring and wonderful for grown-ups in the modern world, uh, and that this is something that uh, there, not that there is a market for. Again, it's not about it's not about the markets, right? It's about mm -hmm. the uh, it, it's about the readers. It's about the 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 inspiration. This is still a thing that can be done and that we should do. So even people like Le Guin, whose early work does not show, you know derivativeness of Tolkien is still clearly following in Tolkien's footsteps in that way, mm -hmm. just as just as Chaucer was following in Dante's footsteps by saying, hey, I'm going to I'm going to write all of my work in English, which was a crazy thing to do uh, in the 14th century. Um, and it would have been uh, completely ridiculous, like nobody would have given him the time of day had it not been for Dante. Right. Um, because people believe still people weren't sure it could be done in English. Uh, I mean, maybe in Italian, but I'm not sure in English, but at least they had a precedent for this kind of thing. Right. They knew that it was uh, that it was a legitimate thing. And Tolkien clearly provided the same thing for modern fantasists. Like this is clearly uh, an important, a legitimate undertaking and something that it's that it's OK to do. And and so so 
just as uh, uh, so so that for me that's the biggest thing in uh, you know really the most uh, framing relationship that Tolkien has with modern fantasy and the way in which he is the foundation on which everything is built in that way. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just before we move on from thinking about this course, I just wanted to, to um, note and, and question, uh, well, note that actually all the courses we've talked about um, this morning have quite different structures and, and schedules um, and, and you see that range across Signum. Sometimes there are kind of these survey courses where you really do a different text every week. Um, this one is is slightly different in that the, the texts are extremely long um, but you have the time to to fully explore them and to to go through. You, you don't have to sort of read 500 pages in one week kind of thing. Um, right. So it, you know that it, it's interesting isn't it that there is this kind of difference and, and students have um, the ability to, to, to pick a course um, that has a different kind of approach. And this is actually also different to your other course, Corey, um, Lewis and Tolkien. Um, yes. Yeah. So was, was this a bit more of an, was this an experiment as well in terms of the scheduling? Well, it was, uh, well, this was less purely experimental because I'd, I'd, I was following the model of Modern Fantasy 1, um, but there it was, um, that one was more experimental. So I, for for this one, I had the benefit of knowing that it had worked once and hopefully would again. But uh, um, but yeah, I mean, the experiment about this class, in a sense, or you know, about the, the modern fantasy classes together, was not having a dominant theme like in a sense pulling together they're not i mean as sparrow is pointing out they're not completely random choices i haven't just you know selected modern fantasy novels out of a hat and put them in this class and yet i have no there's no overall plan you know about the 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 like you know tracing themes that develop from one work to another or, you know doing close com it, it's uh, the 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 connections were much more broad uh, among them so it is much more like let's just uh, it will be it will be, you know, the premise, it will be interesting and edifying to read like six very different examples of approaches to fantasy in the modern world and to think about those. And let's hope that that happens. And and it did both times. It was really fun both times. Um, uh, but yeah, whereas like in Lewis and Tolkien, I was, uh, I you know, I, I, the three courses we've talked about so far, I think are all really interesting examples of some very different approaches to kind of putting together courses, mm -hmm. right? We have... Yep. Uh, um, you know, in in Lewis and Tolkien, there was this very specific thing we were looking for. Like, let's 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 look at what the attitudes of these writers are in these very specific circumstances. Um, in uh, the 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 uh, uh, the classical course, you know, we have more of a of a of a desire for coverage, right? To 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 look at the major things and make sure that we're you know that, to give people the chance to really explore uh, this tradition. Obviously, you know. Uh, it's still hard to 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 get in, uh, Larry. I know all the things you would want to get in, right? I mean, it's 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 really challenging still. But still, there's there's a design and and a desire to have a uh, to have some coverage there. Uh, and then this one is uh, again not quite random examples of uh, uh, of a broad genre, right? And and sort of you know inviting us to to look to think really broadly about that. Um, so yeah, it's it's it. There's definitely some some interesting contrasts there. 
And that's a great segue uh, actually into our fourth and final course of uh, to discuss um, in this session. Um, although uh, we won't be able to, to spend quite so much time on it because um, the Paul Peterson, who is uh, teaching this course, um, isn't able to join us uh, for the session. He has a, a, another commitment, and um, Nelson Goering, who's who's also helped putting this course together, um, also couldn't make it. But um, you know, we definitely don't want to. Um, anyone to forget about this excellent course, um, Intro to Germanic Philology 2. Now, um, this is a sequel course like Modern Fantasy 2, but unlike Modern Fantasy 2, I understand that there is a requirement that you've done Germanic Philology 1, uh, which was offered last term, because it's it's so kind of um, dependent on um, on linguistic knowledge, I suppose. Um, so it's a slightly different thing, and, and um, you know, we're not, we, we can't sort of sell it to you in quite the same way that we can sell the other courses because uh, um, <laughs> those who qualify to take it already know the kind exactly, of thing. Exactly. It's about. exactly. <laughs> but, but we definitely want to want to think about it and, and sort of think about how awesome it is because it's got such a fantastic schedule. Um, and uh, 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 so it looks so fascinating. I mean, my, my understanding is that it's, you know, the whole idea of philology is that you, it's languages in context and you look at the whole package and you kind of have to look at the whole package when you're thinking about like these kinds of languages. I mean, Old English, Old Norse, you can't pick up the context like you can for modern French, where you just sort of listen to a podcast or watch French TV. You have to sort of study that context in order to understand the languages. Um, that's my understanding anyway. I, I, I The panel, you have probably more expertise in this area. I don't know if, if anyone um, is able to, to, to talk about this. Um, uh, does, does anyone have linguistic experience? Because I definitely don't. Larry does. Larry, I, I do. Fantastic. Well, do, uh, can you tell us what your experience is and, and sort of any thoughts you have on kind of oh. philology in general? Um, wow, what a question. Uh, my experience is that my undergraduate degree was uh, religion, Greek, and linguistics. Uh, and over the years, I've done eight eight languages, most of them dead, but eight languages. Uh, and I teach linguistics at another university. Uh, oh, so okay. I've had some experience doing that. I would love to teach this course, but I'm, <laughs> it's, it's taken better people than I. <laughs> And so, would, is it true that if there is a, is, you know, what we call a dead language, a language that's not sort of actively spoken in everyday life, when we're teaching that, we kind of have to talk about the context a bit. You, you can't just teach as much it, as possible. Yes, right. Yeah. I mean, there are certain ones. You know, take Old Saxon for example, where um, we don't have as much context or as much uh, uh, literature uh, as we would like to to have, and so. You know what context we do have that that becomes even more important than you know in greek where we've got this wealth of of literature from uh several thousand years you know from, from 1500 bce to uh to the present where we've got this continuous tradition uh of this language uh mm -hmm. right so the context becomes a little less important because we've got this this continuity uh whereas you know in in the case of like an old saxon or gothic uh, what we can uncover of, of the context becomes very important. And of course, the connections with Proto-Germanic and Proto-Indo-European, um, those connections become become very important. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I'm so grateful we've got the linguistic expertise in the faculty because it's not <laughs> my background at all, Thank but you. I but it enriches my you know it, I think it enriches the academic life of the university um, to to have language alongside and equal to literature, and that's a very kind of you know to take it back to Lewis and Tolkien. This is something they believed in as well and fought for in Oxford. You know, you don't just um, do literature as if it doesn't it doesn't exist in a language. Uh, obviously, right. you've got to think about languages as well. Um, and uh, and let me the two let me put in a plug for our faculty too, because Paul Nelson and Carl uh, mm -hmm. they know stuff. They are they are yeah. really very very knowledgeable uh, and they're very good teachers. Uh, yeah, so no, I mean they, they're leaders in, in the field. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we're very lucky to have them. And 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 th this course is slightly well. It's quite different actually to the other courses in terms of how it's taught because it's two hours of preceptor sessions, one hour of lectures, rather than two hours, uh, well, three hours of lectures and one hour of preceptor sessions as in other courses because you do have to sort of spend time. Actually right. Well, doing it's the application. Language. It's exactly, the application. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When you're studying language and linguistics, you got to get your fingers dirty, um, hands and in there, and work with it. John is excited about the, uh, the the course because he asks, when will Germanic philology one be offered again? Um, I don't know if there's an answer to that. Sparrow or Corey, do you know? There's a regular rotation uh, that we offer them. Um, it's you, it's it's offered at least once every three years, um, but we, we, we do have a, a regular cycle through the Germanic philology uh, courses because we have, uh, we want to offer philology one and two um, but we also, of course, want to be doing running regularly the Intro to Anglo-Saxon and the Intro to Old Norse um, and the Beowulf Translation Seminar. Those are those are other ones that come around regularly. Um, uh, this is, I mean, it's it's funny because um, people wouldn't get. So I bet you, if we took these four courses and we, you know, presented them to like a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, just like sort of random people and asked them, asked, asked a poll question and said, of these four courses, which one is the one that was unilaterally demanded by students? Which, which one of these courses was produced in order to meet like adamant and vocal student request and need? And the answer is this one, Germanic philology too, is the one that students were clamoring for. Um, uh, you know, the others uh, have sort of come from us, come from the faculty, things that, you know, we wanted to teach and things that we thought would be fun to do and would be really good uh, to, to, you know, uh, topics to, to discover and discuss in our classes. Uh, Germanic philology, too, was there was public outcry, you know, that, that we had the, you know, we started experimenting with the philology classes through um, Tom Shippey's uh, uh, Tolkien through philology class. And, you know, people really just wanted more, right? You know, the old Norse class came uh, out of that because that was something people got a taste for and, and wanted more of. Uh, and uh, and then, but yeah, and allow us to continue, uh, you know, more advanced topics in Germanic philology. Uh, you know, having been introduced to the concept of, of you know, and, and some of these, the basic principles of looking at the, the, the growth and change of the Germanic languages over time, uh, there was still more to do and they wanted to do more. So, uh, so the people spoke and eventually we were able to, uh, uh, to give them Germanic philology too, which they really wanted. So, uh, uh, so yes, with within uh, so within our, our our students who are you know we have a, we have a, a really strong interest in philology in our department, and I've often said, because um, and I still believe it to be true, 
uh, that Signum University is the only institution of higher education on planet Earth that has a growing philology department. Um, it's, they're shrinking everywhere else. I just heard this past week from a friend uh, who teaches uh, at a large school that they just cut their English department. Um, uh, the, the school just cut their English, history, uh, visual and performing arts, to, uh, I mean, uh, most of their humanities departments just got cut, actually, from the school entirely. Um, and uh, and that, that, you know, that's an, ex well, I know it's not, sadly, it's not a very extreme example in the, in the modern climate, but it's, uh, uh, but certainly Germanic philology as a study is decreasing and you don't get, you don't see many uh, many people hiring for Germanic philology professors anymore, um, but but we do. Like we, you know, it's it, again, it's growing here, and and I, that's awesome. It's really exciting. It's been it's been an inspiring thing for me to see. Even though Gabriel, like you, I'm not a linguist myself, and that's never been uh, that's never been my background. But I've been really excited to see. Uh, to see that grow at Signum and and uh, uh, to see us move forward with this. So in, in, in a lot of ways, Germanic Philology too was a really exciting course um, uh, to, uh, uh, to to see develop uh, because it's 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 one of the uh, one of the the plainest examples of like the organic growth of our uh, of our curriculum and of our, our program of study. Absolutely. Um, well, we're coming um, sadly to the to the end of our time, but we've we've got a, a a few more minutes for some more questions, and I do want to also get to some of the comments that have been left um, across the the session that I didn't get to read out. So, firstly, Belle um, d uh, had a comment just uh, saying that she really um, uh, that they really liked the uh, title of the. Uh, so the idea of the book that you were talking about, Sparrow, um, which is Bandersnatch, um, ultimately, Bell says, all the inklings influenced each other in one way or another. I believe it is the complementary personalities of Lewis and Tolkien that make um, that make them an interesting pair. Um, I think that's that's very true. Um, and uh, and there were some a few more comments about the um, legends, uh, classical myths and legends course as well. Um, so, uh, oh yeah. So, so Noam had a, a, an update to uh, to re reading the Hebrew um, version of the classical myths and legends. All the stories were shorter than I remembered them. Um, about a, uh, they're only about a page per story. Um, it's true that you can you can uh, summarize these stories very succinctly, actually, and they expand in our imaginations, particularly when we're young. Um, but it's, I think, one of the cool things about your course, Larry, is is that you get to read. The originals and you get to spend the time with them although actually i mean from my memory hesiod's theogony was quite succinct as well uh, yes yeah, it's, it's a surprisingly page. short text <laughs> yeah um there's not kind of great sort of inner psychology or anything like that sort of as, as you think th through ideas um uh, and Chris had a comment. Um, uh, Gareth Hins has a series of graphic novels based on the Iliad, Odyssey, Beowulf, etc. Very popular amongst my students at the community college level. And um, that sounds very, very cool. Dakaka had a few comments about the um, Modern Fantasy II uh, schedule, saying, uh, I need to read David Eddings some time and McCarthy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't. I feel embarrassed to admit this, but I haven't read any of those books on the um, Modern Fantasy II course. I, my, my 
my reading of contemporary literature is actually pretty shoddy. I, I tend to read people who've been dead for at least 50 years. Um, so is my. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, so we're, we're, I think, um, oh yeah, Phil's, Phil asks, what evidence is there that Zeus ever thought through anything? Uh, <laughs> that's, that's fair, that's fair. Uh, Takako comments, our philologists don't seem to sleep. Yeah, um, it's certainly very, very busy. Um, oh, and, and um, Takako also says, more languages courses are coming, I believe. I don't know if that's a hopeful, I believe, or or, or Takako, you have some inside knowledge there, but hopefully there will get some some more in the future. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think that's all the comments I missed, but um, that, that, that comment about uh, what we were just talking about, uh, filling in gaps in our knowledge leads me to sort of a question we can end on which is um to everyone on the panel um if you could take one course this term what would it be and why and you can't pick your own so i thought maybe sparrow if we begin with you what, what do you I think will, i will say again i would love to come back to the classical myths and legends as a grown-up and because uh, a few years a parishioner of mine said sparrow in her lovely southern accent what is it you believe in? I said, <laughs> I had to think for a minute and said, I believe in stories. So oh, nice. that's the my direction that I would come into that class from Larry. And boy, I wish I were there. Mm. It reminds me. Um, <laughs> I think there's a story of C.S. Lewis on one of the few trips he ever went uh, outside the uh, the British Isles. He went to Greece for his honeymoon. And uh, if I remember rightly, he came across some kind of shrine to, uh, to Zeus or someone like that. And he, and he said, in a way, I felt it wouldn't have been blasphemous to have um, prayed to that shrine because he was sort of, he, he saw the kind of link um, through storytelling um, between his own Christian beliefs and the kind of the classical stories and, and religion. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of nice image. Um, uh, sorry, who, who have we got left? Sorry, I've, I've obscured. Oh yeah, Larry, Larry, what what course would you take if you if you could take? <sighs> That's a tough question, but I would probably go to with the uh, with modern fantasy too, um, since I really haven't read a lot of fantasy literature since 1986. So <laughs> that was a good that was a good decade. Um, <laughs> That's the year that everything happened. I'd like to get it? back into reading more fantasy and science fiction than I've been able to, uh, and so I would probably jump into that course. Yeah, and there's some great influences on on uh, of classical myths and legends on on the genre as well. I suppose. I mean, that, that thinking too. Percy Jackson and certain things like that, but mm -hmm. just in general. Um, Corey, what about what about yourself? Oh, definitely Larry's course. Uh, I'm I'm really glad that we're uh, that we're doing that. I mean, in some ways, of course, it, it's it's a little bit different that you know that we've we've been focusing so much on Germanic stuff. That's one of the things that I like about it. Um, but I totally agree with Larry. It's the kind of thing where like you you need these are things these are myths that you need to know because they are so deeply ingrained. Even when they're not being alluded to, they're so deeply ingrained. Uh, in you know, so if you're interested in medieval stuff and 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 Renaissance stuff, as so many of our students are, um, you really really need to know these things. And so I, I and I think it's it's just a wonderful opportunity uh, to to study through them. Uh, so and 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 yeah, I I would love to do it. There's some of these texts I haven't read in years, and I would uh, I would really enjoy uh going through them again mm -hmm. fantastic and liam what about you uh well i was probably going to say dramatic pathology too but that's not uh, actually i'm not eligible for that having not taken <laughs> one um so 
uh, yeah, uh, Dramatic Philology one if it was an offer. But uh, between the other two, I yeah, I think I might. Uh, I'm gonna go with modern fantasy. Actually, um, I don't know what fantasy literature is either. Come to think of it, and I don't know that I would be a hundred percent sure what it was at the end of that course. But I think I'd be uh, have have a much better idea. That's some good ways to continue thinking about it. We would have so much fun in class with Liam and Larry there. <laughs> Uh, well, I, um, gosh, it's very difficult for me to answer that question as well, because I, it's like choosing between your children or something, especially since I have no skin in the game. And in, in this case, um, I'm not teaching any of these courses. But uh, yeah, Germanic philology, I think, would, would be definitely useful for me. Um, but I could see getting a lot out of those other courses as well. So I, I agree with Takako. Um, you know, ideally you'd be able to take uh, all the courses at once, but, um, and then that's not always possible. Um, but that, that, that's my cop-out answer. I'll take them all and just not sleep for three months, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, I hope everyone has a wonderful term. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's great, great uh, selection of courses and, uh, and the terms always go, I think, very well and and the students get a lot out of everything and the the teachers get a lot out out of the students as well it's a very you know um two-way relationship so um uh I, i'm very much looking forward to it i hope you are as well i, I mean uh, how do how do you how does the panel feel about the upcoming term are you excited i'm very excited oh yeah fantastic I'm a bit nervous too <laughs> Well, it's 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 the the thrill of the live course. It's it's kind of nerve wracking to begin with, but uh, you you get uh, you get into the flow of it from my own experience, and then it's it's just so exciting to, to have a live course offered every time, uh, if possible. So I'm really really grateful that we're able to do that, and super grateful that we've got all these other courses as well. Uh, and thank you very much the the rest of the panel for coming together and um, answering all these questions that I had and the audience had. Uh, and thank you to all of you for attending and asking questions as well. So um, that's it from me. Um, thank you again and good luck with the oncoming term. And we'll see you um, at the next Signum Symposium event. So thank you very much, everyone, and uh, have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank Bye. you.